Hey, it's Pillar here and you're listening to the No Approval Podcast. I'm excited to be back in the studio recording and filming with some great guests. Yes, so keep a lookout for some visuals. Today I am joined by Dr. Julia Ravy or... Julia Ravy PhD, which is the title that she prefers, as you'll hear in our chat. Julia is a neuroscientist, which is all about the study of the brain. Her work spans so many different things from being an author. She released a book earlier this year called Braintenance. She's also a presenter for BBC Sounds on the Mental Muscle podcast, as well as being a producer for BBC Audio Science Unit. She basically makes science easy to understand and digestible for the everyday person like me and you, who might not have any clue on what is going on upstairs in our brain. Her work is truly fascinating. And today we chat about how much our brain versus the environment affects our everyday behavior. So from things such as why do we feel a need to seek approval or why do we fail or excel at reaching our goals and whether trauma can be passed down genetically. Let's get into it. Ellen Mitchell. Hi, Julia. Hello. Or should I say Dr. Julia? I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> you were just like, I don't like it. But you know, it is, yeah, I am Dr. Julia. Doctor. Dr. Julia. It's just me. I don't know what it is. As soon as you say doctor, I think people think serious. Or people think, oh my God. It's an emergency. Let me get her to help someone who's in dire need and I will be, abs- I'd be useless. Well, you won't be useless because like the brain is a serious thing. And true. You, you have researched the brain. This is true. I'm thinking more on like a flight if someone's oh, in a situation. Oh, they're like, Dr. Julia, can you come and help? I'd be like, I can tell you what's going on in your brain right now, but, but I can't help you. <laughs> in an emergency, I'm not really, yeah, I'm oh, the best. Oh, yeah. Well, that's me and you both because I like panic. My sister's dog was choking the other day. I think I fed <gasps> him something that he shouldn't have been fed. I'm a feeder, so I always yeah. give him like my bones, my chicken, my lamb, whatever. So I definitely gave him something and he started choking. And I froze. I, was, I, I just had to call my sister. I said, calm down. I Googled it and he's there. I'm like, do this, do this, do that. What do you do in that situation? Because is there a 999 for pets? Oh, do you know what I mean? I don't think there is, you know. But we have know? got um, some local vets. But what you do is you're meant to, I Googled it, you're meant to lift the back of their legs. Right. You lift their back of their legs so that if there's anything stuck, it just comes out, if that makes sense. Yeah. But he figured himself out anyway, as he always does. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he sorted it. He sorted it out. By the time my sister came rushing down, he'd sorted it out. I was like, oh, sorry, full salam. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, all the drama, no need. All the drama, no need. But no, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, I am absolutely fascinated with the work that you do. We were talking so much before we started recording, so yeah. I think she knows. <laughs> I think you know. Yeah. But just to get things started off, obviously this podcast mm. is called No Approval. Now... Our behaviours, because you had like a part in your book where you spoke about like behaviour, like how much of your behaviour is influenced by your brain and what part of it is influenced by your environment in terms of like, like why do we seek approval? What part of us is making us seek approval from other people? I think approval... It drives so much of what we do, even if we don't consciously recognize that. And, you know, if you think, like, if you go back in time, like in terms of evolution and think about humans and other animals, we survive in a group, we live in a group. 
it's actually like fundamental for us to to be in groups together. We wouldn't really survive out by ourselves. And so it's fundamental that we have really good relationships with other people. And within that approval just comes straight in. Like in order to be able to have that bond with someone else, you want them to think, yeah, that's someone that's worth me spending my time with, giving my resources to. So if you think of it in that terms, like evolution and how we've come to be such a social species, I think approval is at the heart of it. And now it just plays out day to day. You know, you you learn quite early on. I think the brain when you're younger is so plastic Mm. and you're learning. Essentially, your brain, when you're born into this world, you have all of the gear, but you don't have the ideas. You know, you've got everything there that you need to navigate the world. But the brain is essentially taking in all the information to say, okay, how do I survive? So like a sponge, the brain's like a sponge. sponge. Uh, Exactly that. And it's a sponge, but a sponge for its very immediate environment. So it's not thinking about, okay, I'm on this planet that is Earth and this is how Earth works. It's thinking, okay, this is my world. What I can see is my world. It's like a spotlight. So it's essentially learning like, okay, this is how my parents interact with me. And this is how I respond to them in order to survive in that situation. So I think we learn all these patterns from school, teachers, parents, other influential people in our lives really early on. And that then sticks with us later on. If you're told really early on, you're a good girl, you're a good boy. That's a sense of like reward. And the brain essentially, when it feels reward, it reinforces, oh, what you just did before that, that was good. We'll learn to do that again. And I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm definitely a massive people pleaser. Oh, I'm yeah, I'm, yeah. A, I'm, no, I'm a recovering people pleaser. I, I, I think I'm in that phase of trying to recover, but it's that, you know, I think as a kid, I was so energetic and quite naughty when I was like little, little. I don't really remember, but I've been told I was very like, <laughs> and as soon as <laughs> literally, I was just like all over the place. And as soon as I went to school, I was like, told I was very good I was a good girl and that really not tamed me but it taught me that okay if I listen to the teacher if I do what I'm told I'll get a sticker I'll get a star I'll be rewarded I'll be told like to my mum and dad that's like oh she's really good and I think from that it's definitely created this whole idea of like I need to seek the approval of others Mm. in order to be worthy of something and I think it's just so many of us have these patterns that have you know, through no fault of our own. You know, when they say like, if you work out, then you get serotonin. It makes you happy. Is serotonin the right one? (laughs) Yeah, I think when you work out, this is like cocktail of endorphins, you call them. Yes, that's it, happy endorphins. Yeah. Is that the same thing? Like when, does that happen in our brain then when certain things happen? Yeah, it's, we have in our brain something we call the reward pathway. I like to actually call it the reinforcing pathway rather than reward. But essentially when you have, a good experience, say, you know, you eat a good piece of cake or you get that gold star for your work or something like that. The brain will see that reward as this is something good. And in this pathway, it's essentially saying whatever came before it, do it again. It reinforces whatever led to the reward. The brain is, its job really is to make you survive in whatever environment you're in. Mm. So it's looking for ways to advance you those shiny new things that it's like yes get that and then we'll be advanced or it's like okay avoid that that's threatening that's scary we don't want to go near it so it's sort of surveying these situations and this reward pathway is really important for like picking up that was good whatever we did before that remember it and do it again and it keeps going like that so do some people have more of that or less than that 
Because you know, like in terms of social media, right? Mm -hmm. We're now getting rewarded every time we post something. It's a like, it's a like, it's a like, it's a yeah. share or whatever. It's a comment. <laughs> but some people maybe do it a bit more. Like some people post a bit more. Some people post a bit less. Some people are like social media avoided. They don't even go, like the whole thing scares the life out of them. Mm. So what is it that is driving, would you say, people to seek it more or seek it less? I think that's so interesting because if we just look at like... I'm not saying social media is necessarily addictive, but if you look at addiction, mm -hmm. addiction is, we think, a problem with this reward pathway in the brain. Ah. And so like alcohol, drugs. Alcohol, drugs, gambling, sex, porn. Yeah. So we think what is happening there is these things initially are seen as the brain is something good. So they go, ah, that was great. We need to do that again. And it's thought that some people can have a drink and feel sort of good about it, but they don't become an alcoholic, right? There are other people who will have a drink and they will sadly become alcoholics. And that comes down in part, we think, to genetics. So there is a component where if one of your parents has a substance use disorder, then you're more likely to have it. So it's something to do with essentially the way your brain is initially built in the womb. So I like to think of the brain when it's built is like, we all have the same materials. We all have like the wood, the concrete, the bricks, but all of us are slightly different. So some people's concrete might be like thicker than others. Some people's bricks might be more brittle. So we all have the same sort of structure, but everyone is slightly different. Mm. So some people in that reward pathway will have slight differences that mean when they have the alcohol, when they have the drugs, when they gamble, it's more likely to be something that sticks. Mm. And, and it's sad because over time, it's not even rewarding anymore. The reward pathway isn't necessarily even active in these things. What it is doing is teaching the brain that the action is important and the brain will start to memorize the action and it will just sort of automatically seek the drugs, seek the alcohol. And it's not even rewarding anymore. So, yeah. And I think with social media, social media, I, I don't know if it's necessarily addictive in the same way. And I think studies are going on to try and see there is something called internet use disorder, which is where people are really, really hooked on the internet. But the likes thing, I think, is massive because it is, it is that validation. It yeah. is, wow, someone likes me. And like you said, some people are really forward on social media and they're like you know they want to share every aspect of their life because they're getting that validation and other people are absolutely like no way and I think yeah definitely like personal experience maybe a bit of genetics in there maybe a bit of like do I need this validation why am I seeking this validation where's that come from the needs for it because I think a lot of us probably have a need for validation which we don't really know why we have it and we can sort of look back and be like oh maybe it's come from I didn't really get some validation earlier on in my life or I was told you're going to be this big successful thing and you feel like, oh yeah, this is what I want. Yeah. So I think the likes, the comments, the follows, it can get dangerous, slippy slope. It can, definitely. Yeah. And another thing that I found really interesting mm. that you wrote in your book when you're talking about like things coming through genetics is you shared this experiment where people could feel like they're their family trauma? Yeah, this is a really interesting area of science, which I think is starting to be unpicked. So we all get born with our DNA. So half from one parent, half from the other parent. We're like a, a mixture of both. And that is pretty set. You know, once you're born with that, every cell in your body 
has this genetic code. It's the instruction manual to make every single protein in your body. But this instruction manual has punctuation, which we call epigenetics. So essentially along the DNA, there are little markers that say, make more of this protein, make less of this protein, like that. And that can be influenced by things like stress, trauma, um, adverse events in childhood, things like that can influence what proteins are switched on and which ones are switched off. So there's been this research to look into if I have changes to my epigenetics throughout my life, does that impact my children? And does that impact my grandchildren? And it's a really, I don't know, for me personally, like as a neuroscientist, I'm thinking, how does that work? Because it would have to impact my egg cells. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I don't know how, you know. Unless like how, in the ovaries, they're yeah, just absorbing the everything. And they're, they're changing and that's then passed on. But they've done experiments with mice. And this is the experiment that I wrote about in the book where they essentially put a mouse in a sort of experimental setup. They played the sound and they gave it a little electric shock. And this is something we call fear conditioning. So the mouse is learning that when it hears that sound, it's going to get a little painful stimulus. And then over time, you just play the sound to it and the mouse will freeze because it thinks the pain, even if you don't give it the shock. And what this experiment showed was that not just the children of that mice, but the grandchildren of that mice. Wow. When it heard the sound, it had a similar reaction. Reaction. Even though it had never had the same conditioning experiment. So it didn't even know the feeling, but it was just scared. Yeah, it was more scared than mice that hadn't had their grandparent go through the same thing. Wow. So it's like, it's a sort of argument for, can we actually pass on traumas that we've had in our lives? And I think we do pass them on anyway, environmentally, because if your parents have had trauma, then undoubtedly that's going to come out in their behaviour anyway. And 100%. if the brain is so plastic when you're young, if you're, one of your parents is very reactive, then you're going to feel the brunt of that, even if they're not meaning for you too. You know, if they just go, and they can't help it because they've been through an event that's led them to be very reactive, then you're going to feel that. And then you are going to exhibit probably some of the same behaviours. So it's, it's a whole one to tease apart. Like, mm -hmm. is it just the parents already are passing that on through experience? Or is it like a genetic, you could never meet your grandma, but that will still be, you know what I mean? It's a really hard one to like tease apart. Nature, nature. Oh, it is, it is mm. a tough one. But then like some cultures do believe in things like generationally things are passed down. Yeah. Because can you imagine if it's like a family where unfortunately one of the parents passed mm. and then whoever's left sometimes can see traits of that, of the parent that's passed in their children. They yeah. might be like, oh my gosh, you're just like your dad. Yeah. Or you're just like your mum. Yeah. Your mum used to say that. Your dad used to say that. Yeah. So I definitely think there's something in that that is definitely passed through the genetics. But I want to go back really quickly because you said on the social media thing, yeah. hold on, two things before I go. You know, you said the mice experiment. Yeah. When I buy beauty products or when I read about experiments and people are like, oh, not tested on animals or this mm. has been tested on animals. Or sometimes you think things have been passed because they've been tested on humans, but they haven't. They've been tested on animals. Mm. How similar are we to mice? Like, how That's do we know yeah. what happened in the mouse would happen to us as humans? That's actually a, a real question. You should be a scientist. She's coming, give her the PhD. <laughs> no. Yeah, because mice are not humans. Definitely not. But in science, we sort of like to take a hypothesis, something that we think could be true, and then we try and test it 
in different ways to see, can we get the evidence to say, yes, this is true or no, it's not true. And I think you can never actually say that something's 100% true. It's really weird being a scientist. You literally question your entire being and like, why am I here? Like I've had so many existential crises because of DNA. <laughs> Just like, why? Uh, but I think with science, we sort of, we can look in cells and things like that and look at things under a microscope. But if we want to compare things to humans, we do sometimes look in mice because they're alive and you can sort of see, okay, if there's a change in their brain, how will they react? It's not perfect, but we can't do that in humans. We can't look at a human's brain and then, <laughs> and then go from a human's brain and try and make them change. So mice aren't perfect, but... Do they do it on any other animals or just mice? It's normally mice, rats. There's some stuff on monkeys, but that's a bit more hard to like get approved do you know what I mean like that's got to be really because they're so human like yeah they're so human like so the more human like you get the harder it is to get approval on that type of work and the less you can do so with monkey stuff it's more let's just observe them you know with a mouse you can make a change in its genetic code before it's born wow and then see how that will impact the mice but there's so many rules and regulations around it and I think science is moving now towards trying to reduce as much mouse work as possible you'd love to get to a point where we could have computers that are really, really good at like actually mimicking human behavior. So we made this change. This is how it will be, you know, and have these models. We're far away from that. But other work that isn't mouse, cell work in a dish, that's getting way better. My PhD was mostly cell work, yeah, which is where I had like human cells growing in a dish. And we looked at how they react yeah. rather than having to look in the mice. Do any humans just like offer themselves like, hey, Use me. Yeah. Like, I think people offer themselves, like, post-mortem. So, yeah. you know, they say, here's my body for science. Uh, and here's and, my organ. Yeah. And I did research on Alzheimer's disease and that donation is absolutely, like, pivotal. So, really? you know, how we understand Alzheimer's disease now, that has come from people donating. And, you know, you've got to be so grateful. And when you work with tissue given to you from people, it's just, like, it's massively humbling and massively... Yeah, I just have massive respect for people who do that. And when I'm working in the lab, you've got to never forget that. You've got to never forget that, like, this was someone's life and they've given over part of them to help Other this people. disease. Yeah, and help it not be as prevalent or find some sort of treatment or cure for the future. So, yeah, it's a really humbling experience, I think, to be a scientist. And it's it's got to be at the front of your mind. So I think the whole time you work in, in the lab is have the people and also the animals as well, because they're being sacrificed in certain situations. So to be just very cautious and yeah. How far would you say we are for a cure for Alzheimer's? Alzheimer's? I would say for Alzheimer's disease, we had a really good breakthrough last year in terms of we've been trying to get a treatment for 20 odd years now. There is a a hypothesis in the 1990s where we said, okay, we think this is how Alzheimer's disease works, but we weren't, you know, we, we still needed to test it, but we said, let's try this. And then people have made drugs around that. So they said, okay, if we get rid of this one thing from the brain, that should hopefully stop Alzheimer's disease. And all the drugs have been made around that and we've just seen loads of failures. So it's been really like disheartening. Yeah. You go, we think this is how it works. We think this is what's going on in the brain. We try and correct it and it hasn't fixed it. But there was a drug last year that showed for the first time that if you give people with mild Alzheimer's disease, so really early on in the disease, this drug that essentially lowers a protein in the brain that builds up an Alzheimer's disease into these 
plaques. We call them plaques. They build up outside our brain cells. They shouldn't be there. Normally the brain can clear them away. In Alzheimer's, they build up and they don't get cleared. And if you clear these plaques with a drug, it was shown that the people with Alzheimer's disease on this drug had a slower progression of their symptoms, which is indicating it's actually doing something for the disease. So it's, it's a it first step. It's a tiny, tiny step. Tiny breakthrough, but, but a breakthrough in the right direction. Yeah, hopefully now it means we can take that drug and refine it and make it even better. And there are other drugs looking at, you know, the brain's immune system. We think that's massive in Alzheimer's disease, like how our brain cells essentially clear up the space around other brain cells. That's massive. So fingers crossed. Fingers Different crossed. Apps. That's amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now the main event, because we are 12 weeks into the year. So that's like 12 weeks since some of us set our New Year's resolutions, Mm -hmm. new goals, new me, new everything. (laughs) And here is the old me. (laughs) She's back in business. But listen, for some people, the goals are gone. I mean, I don't don't really set New Year's resolutions, but Mm. I do have things that I want to achieve in the year. Mm. And you released a whole book on how the brain can help us towards reaching our goals and setting goals so what would you say to people that have really broken their resolutions like where are we going wrong i would say firstly if you've had a resolution back in jan and it's completely you're like where is that gone don't that i would say don't be embarrassed don't be ashamed it's very very natural because i think we set ourselves these massively lofty goals and then we go there's the goal it's gonna happen and then we sort of leave it and we leave our goals in the hands of our motivation which i think is the biggest mistake you can do because motivation it like peaks and troughs peaks and troughs and we have the big vision Mm -hmm. and we think that's enough to motivate us but in reality to make that big vision happen you need to do quite mundane quite difficult things day to day and I don't think it's enough. Like, I don't think it's enough to say, oh, my dream career is this and it's going to happen in five years time. Oh, but today I've just got to sit and read this really hard paper about this thing or I've got to do this work, admin work I don't want to do. I think it's that is where we go wrong. We think the vision is enough. The vision is not enough. The vision board, even though it can be motivating for some people, I don't think it's enough. Mm-hmm. And that's where we... Report. I used to be so big on, on vision boards, mm-hmm. but even I know, like, that's just a visual element. Like, yeah. it's, it's not going to get me out of bed every single day knowing exactly what I need to do. Yeah, and sometimes I think with, like, for me, I have big goals and, like, with a vision board, I enjoy it in some elements because yeah. it reminds you this is what I'm doing it for. But there are some days when you're just not in the mood and you look at it and, and go, I'm miles away from that. Yeah. It makes you feel almost like, what's the point? I'm never going to get there. Yeah, I think that's my, my brain like just re- flips and reverses on me when I'm in a bad mood. It's like, oh, who do you think you are? <laughs> who do you think <laughs> you audacity. are? The audacity of you and your vision board. Like, <laughs> you're a joke of me. So I think that is, it's one way to help. But I think what you really need to do is take the goal, break it down, get it to be the smallest steps possible. We have the big goal and we've got to think, okay, well, what is the very next step on the ladder? Break it down. And with each of these steps, I think it's important to focus on the skills you need to build to make that next step happen. Because that's something in your control. Your, like what you do with your time you know, it's limited for some people, but it is more in your control and you can choose what you do with your time. So it is about thinking about what is the goal and how can I build the skills up for that goal? And how does our brain affect our 
goals. I think you've got to get your brain on your side. And that to me is in the simplest terms, you want your brain to not feel like it's doing too much work towards your goals. You want your so brain... So our brain is like a part-timer, basically. You want your brain to essentially... <laughs> it wants the soft life. Yeah. You know the tasks you have to do to get a goal. So if you have a big goal of like, okay, I want to be... Have my own podcast like you. And you can be like, okay, I want my own podcast. Um, so each day I need to sort of show up, do a bit of the admin work. I need to, you know, research for guests, blah, blah, blah. You need to do all of these little bits. You want to show up to those types of events like you show up to brush your teeth. Not much thought. You brush your teeth every day without going, oh my God, I've got to brush my teeth today. Or what's the, po- what's the point? You know, you want there to be as little resistance as possible. Mm. And that's where I think you can really... Like if you get into like how the brain works and how the brain makes certain actions more default, then that's massive if you can do that. And the so brain, like making it a habit, like brushing your teeth, that's brushing it. your teeth is a habit. Yeah. You make the actions that you want to do towards that goal habitual, like brushing your teeth. And the brain is quite fickle in its, you know, all respect to the brain, but it makes things habits which it thinks are important to you. Yeah. It makes things habits which you do frequently. So important to the brain is either something which is done repeatedly or something which has a really heightened emotional response. So most people's first memories, if you can think back, it's normally something which was either really exciting or really scary. For me, it was when I was locked in a toilet at nursery. That's my first real memory. I must have been about three. And I can remember it because it was fear. So the brain will say, oh, it's scary. I need to remember it. I need to remember the actions that got me there. And with things that are repeated as well, the brain doesn't want to, every time you go to tie your shoelace, have to think about every single action. If you've done it enough times, you can go, I can be talking to you now and just tie my shoelace and not think about it. So it's a way for the brain to put its energy into new problems around it. It's using this frontal part of your brain and the bandwidth in that part of the brain is quite limited. So you don't want to have to use it to tie your shoelace when you your brain can essentially go okay I know the motor pattern I know where my hands need to go to do it and it's the same for other little actions like brushing your teeth and things like that the brain will associate a time of day or you know a preceding action waking up and getting out of bed with Mm. going and brushing your teeth it's just pretty much like it follows through straight away and the brain uses cues in the environment to do that so I like to try and make whatever action it is each day as small as possible make it really little to start building that consistency, making it easy to repeat. So if you wanted to do something like, okay, the big dream is to make a podcast, the first thing might be, okay, I've got to start writing scripts. And I try and think of how can you make that as small as possible. And for me, that would be, okay, today I'm going to write one sentence. It sounds like nothing. And I want an action that I can say to myself and my brain goes, I can do that. If I go, I'm going to write 10 sentences, my brain might go, no, not today. So you've got to find your threshold for what you go, okay, I could do that. And then pick a time each day where you can show up to do that. And you know, you could do it a few times a week. You could do it every morning if you want to do it every evening. And then just go and do your one sentence. And what you're starting to do there is take away any of that. Oh my God, what am I? Who do I think I am? What is, what's going on there? You're doing the one little tiny thing. And by doing that each day, your brain will start to just, you'll go to your desk without really thinking about it. Mm. You'll start doing that without thinking about it. And the one sentence, to me, I call it like a gateway because you don't have to just write one sentence, you can keep going. But in some days, you know, when you're just like, oh, I can't be bothered. If you just write the one sentence, you can go, I'm done for the day, but you've still so done it. It's like your brain ticks it off the it's, list. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's that repetition and consistency that hopefully will enable the brain to start to 
make that a more automated behavior and you'll have less of this resistance and other like you know oh i can put that off till tomorrow or i don't want to do that right now it's too hard you just end up showing up every day and giving yourself that space and that's what i think is so important with any goal you have break it down to the next step in front of you and then think of the skills you need and make that skill really really tiny and try and do it as often as you can I think. So do you believe in that thing when they say if you do something for 21 days, it becomes a habit? Oh, this is an interesting one because I think that was a study that I think came out and it was like taking a 21 days habit. I think the rhetoric is right. Like if you repeat something enough, it will become more automated, not necessarily always like as default as like brushing your teeth. I think it depends on how easy something is. So if it's like, okay, I want to drink a glass of water every day. That's something which is, you know, if you did that for a month or so, you probably would start to do that a bit more. But if you're doing something like, okay, I want to go to the gym or I want to do something which takes a little bit, there's more steps involved. So it's not just like one action because a habit for the brain is, it's essentially a movement normally. It's like, okay, so the brain will remember, you know, like when you're driving your car or you're going to work and you go, I'm going to take a different route today. And if you don't focus, you end up back on the same route. Your brain is essentially like, that's what it does with habits. It's like, you know, drinking the water, you automatically will pick up the cup and just do it. So if there's more steps involved, then it's going to take a lot longer to make it more default. But I think the more you do it over time, the less resistance you have to doing it. If you, every lunchtime, you're like, I'm going on a walk. The first few weeks you do it, it might take time. But all of a sudden there'll be one day you're putting trainers on, you're out the door. You don't even notice. Even if it's raining, whatever, you just do it. Because it's become part of the routine. The brain is associated lunchtime with let's go for a walk. So it just gets rid of the drama. That's what we don't want drama in our lives, especially not with our goals, because it means we'll just slack them off. Honestly, because I did do this one like 30 day challenge yeah. of working out. I think it was like an hour or something. By the end of it, I hated it. I was like, <laughs> I'm not going to work out again for weeks I hated it but then I did this um I signed up to another one which was like 20 minutes a day mm. and then it could even be like a brisk walk or whatever and that felt that felt so much better for me yeah. so that makes sense but I do think it's a bit dangerous that we have that saying out there without too much context because then sometimes if something doesn't feel like a habit after 21 days yeah. you might like sack it off because yeah. you're just like oh well that didn't work for me mm. when actually what you're saying is that for certain things that habit building might take three months. Mm-hmm. It might take six months. It might even take the whole year. Yeah, it just takes time. And I think we're not consistent beings. Our moods fluctuate, you know, <laughs> you know, all the time. And there are situations that go on in our life. There are stresses that we can't control. And you've got to cut yourself some slack as well in all of these situations. I feel like, you know, you always have a default comfort. My default comfort for me is sitting on the couch and watching the telly. And I can tell, (laughs) you know, you can tell when you're in a bit of a like, I must be stressed because I've watched three episodes of The Real Housewives and just like lay on the couch. Like, you know, yeah, yeah, I do as well. But I can tell sort of when I'm not in the best headspace because I'll start doing that. And that's like my comfort. So yeah, I think you've got to cut yourself a bit of slack and not be like, oh my God, I'm not just doing that off the cuff because there are other influences in your life as well but if you make it so tiny that you know you can sort of convince yourself okay I can give it a go I can do it a few times a week and then over time it will you will just have a a little bit less drama and hopefully a, a lot less drama and you'll end up building up things that once felt difficult will feel much much easier you know you look back on things in your life now and you go 
oh my God, I used to find that really hard and now yeah. I just do it. Yeah, yeah. If, especially, I think exercise is something you can do because you go, oh, last year I couldn't lift 20 kilos and now I can do 40, no problem. You can see the progress. You can see the progress. Like, if you keep going. And I feel like that happens with everything if you're building up these little skills every day. And then all of a sudden the opportunity will come along for whatever it is you're trying to do. And you've built the skills that you need. They're there. They're, they're in your like arsenal ready to go. So I think that's why it's just so important to have that little bit of consistency and make it like as easy and as, and as fun for yourself as possible. If it's fun, you're going to want to do you're it. You're going to keep doing it. Yeah. So as a brain scientist, have you hacked that in yourself? <laughs> like, have you hacked your brain? Do all the goals you want. No. Achieve anything you want. It's so funny because like, I've written this book and I've been told this before. Actually, I was speaking to my dad about this recently and, you know, we're talking about character traits and you go, you know, you look at someone else and you go, oh, I can see some character traits in them, which like, if they just, you know, did this, it would make them better. And my dad said, yeah, you're just so logical. And I was like, <laughs> what? Why is that a bad thing? But he said, Julia, there are times in your life when you can be too logical about things and I can take away the human element quite a lot. And I think that's maybe my scientific, you know, I just go, I'll just do that. And my dad's just like, no. So I think when it comes to, you know, this book I've written, I've been able to step back and be like, oh yeah, this is the things you obviously should do. And I've been able to apply it in my life and in my career and get me to this point. Yeah, because you've got, you've done so much. <laughs> like you've uh, PhD, you produce podcasts, you present, you've released a book. Like you've done so much. But every time I do something new, I have to go back to the book. It's not like it's in here. It's like, hang on, I'm starting something new. Oh, I'm feeling that resistance again. Oh, do you know what? No. And I go, no, 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 no. Go back to the book. Ah, yeah. This is what you've got to do. And it's almost like a blueprint that every time you start something new, I just have to like remind myself and check in with like, okay, check in. This is what you do. This is the th the way you approach it. But in human life, you know, when you've got stresses and your moods up and down, sometimes it's hard to just go to the logical side of things. So I'm glad I've got the logical side of things now documented in a book because then you can just go to them and it's really easy. Like the book is filled with loads of little tiny actions that you can do, really yeah. easy things to help you like stop procrastinating and just, you know, be kind to yourself and bits and bobs like that. And it's good to have it there because then you can just go, ah, this is what I need to do rather than relying on this thing all the time, which is sometimes not the best interpreter of like what you should do in the moment. Sometimes it makes you go for like the, okay, let's sit on the couch and watch four hours of Real Housewives. <laughs> and you're like, okay, this is not what I wanted to do right now, but you've just led me to do it. Okay. <laughs> and what do you do for like your brain health? Because I feel like mm. brain health was a thing that we're hearing people talk about all the time. It's yeah. almost like a buzz term. I think... For me, the biggest thing that you can't get around is sleep. <laughs> really? Yeah. And I would say nutrition and things like that are really important. Still being unpicked in a way, you know, we know for things like dementia, risk, and it's really important to have a good diet. We say, a, a, you know, a Mediterranean diet is what's normally touted. But I feel like it's hard to give nutrition advice in a society where not everyone has equal options when it comes to nutrition. That's so true because I, fast food is always the cheapest yeah. option. And it stigmatizes people who, you know, they go, okay, we'll eat all this fresh fruit and veg. And you're like, oh, hang on, that's going to triple me shopping bill and I can't afford it. So I think there are other fundamentals that obviously nutrition, if you look for things that are as healthy as can be on the budget that you have, brilliant, but that doesn't necessarily feed all the mouths you need to feed. So I think other things you need to do really sleep is fundamental because when you're asleep, 
your brain is very, very active, but not how it's active like me and you are chatting right now. It goes through these different phases and these phases are incredibly important for clearing out the brain. I was talking a bit about Alzheimer's before and how we have these proteins that build up. Yeah in the brain throughout the day because our brain cells are chatting to each other they're chucking out all the waste that they don't need and when you're asleep at night that fluid is all cleaned out and so if you're not getting your sleep that's not getting cleared out properly uh, and also all the things i've never thought of it like that actually. yeah it's like a big flushing system and it just all gets flushed through cleansed through the through the night and then also the things you learn in the day when you're asleep that is like it's vital time for processing all that information putting it into your memories and storing it and that's why if you're like revising for an exam i say never do an all-nighter like do an all-nighter and give yourself another night to sleep afterwards because you do an all-nighter and you won't remember it because your brain needs to sleep but you know what yeah. <laughs> i have a confession i Go was on. so bad at uni for all-nighters no way. Do you know what we used to take this thing called night nurse have you heard of it night like the not night nurse what was it called pro plus pro plus i was gonna say night nurse is the medications where you go to sleep oh yeah that one knocks you out no no pro plus pro plus yeah which, which caffeine is, pills yeah which is meant for like nurses and doctors yeah. we used to take that at uni just to, to put so an all-nighter yeah <laughs> i bet that is so bad it is well if you like i i did one all-nighter at uni for my dissertation one year and i just left it to the last minute and I've never felt like if you think about yourself after a night of sleep, no sleep, you never feel worse. I oh don't my think, gosh! Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like if you just have no sleep, you feel like oh. So I say sleep, especially a night after, like a morning after a big night out, and you and you sleep after alcohol is not bad and quality that's why sleep. You get anxiety as well. You get anxiety after alcohol. What is, oh, anxiety! So like a hangover, and anxiety. you know you get in the next morning. You're going, oh my god, what did I say to that person? <laughs> what, did oh, I do? what did I do? And that's because you've not got well proper sleep is one thing, but alcohol is a like depressant, so it makes your brain not fire as much as it's firing normally. And that gives you that relax. I'll just talk about, you know, I've got no I'll just fish. overshare. I will just tell you my life story and I've met you just now. <laughs> and then the next day, you sort of, one, you remember all that and you go, what the hell? But also the brain rebounds because it's been in this very relaxed state. At some point in the night when the alcohol wears off, it goes, hang on a minute, this is completely wrong. So it puts you into a hyperactive state. So the next day your brain is like this and that's where you get the anxiety. So it's a mixture of like, I haven't slept properly. And then the chemicals in the brain have done this big rebound. And all of a sudden you're like questioning every life choice. And you're like, why was I dancing on a table at a work event? Oh Who my know? gosh. I've what I've that. started doing to myself now, if I ever get, I mean, I don't get into those moments now I'm older, but mm. when I was younger, yeah. I got to that stage, I would just say to myself, or even if you feel embarrassed about something at this age, yeah. I just say to myself, give it a few days. Mm -hmm. Like try to suppress it for two or three days. If you're still thinking about it in three days, it's an issue, but more times you've forgotten it. After I think that's amazing days. advice. I think that's like spot on advice because we think in no bad way, but we're the center of our, of our own universe. <laughs> Main character syndrome. And we're like, oh my God, I was such a fool. And then actually you think about it. I like to do this on a night out. Okay. If I think I was such a fool, think about everyone else who was there. Do I think any of them were fools? I'm like, I can't even re remember what they did. And then you go, ah, they'll be exactly the same about me. Yeah. Unless you've been an actor. Unless you've literally been like cartwheel around, do you know what I mean? I'll work event <laughs> or something. Like if you literally be like, woo, like then maybe. But normally you just go, I, I'm not thinking about what they said to me in that conversation at all. But you'll go, oh my God, have I offended someone? Yeah, offended. yeah. And that's the people pleasing. That's come back to the approval again. Because oh. you go, have I just ruined my whole career, ruined my relationship with that person? And you, you're back in the, I wasn't people pleasing because I was switched off and I was, yeah disinhibited. <laughs>
<laughs> Everyone needs a bit of disinhibition once in a while. Just Everyone to let loose. Like, keep, keep life spicy. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. And lastly, before we go, mm-hmm. did you use all of the systems that you wrote in your book? Did you use that when writing your book? 100%. Like working towards it? Yeah, everything in the book. I use for writing towards it. Set myself a goal. And I think when you set yourself a goal, it's like, it's easy for your goal to be about you and what you want, which is great. But I think for you to really stick at it, think about the other people around you and who it's going to impact, not just you. Like if I'm doing something for me, that will make me a better person for the others around me. Because then when times get tough, it's quite easy to let ourselves down. We do it all the time. We just go, oh, it's just for me. So I'm just going to work. But if you say no, like my partner will feel so much better. Like he will benefit from me going to the gym this morning because I'll be in a better mood. You know, so put it in the context of someone else. And then, yeah, breaking it down into like a really small thing. My goal was like write three sentences a day for the book. That was my goal. Some days I did three sentences. Some days I did three pages. But it was having that consistency of getting up and just doing it. And you stuck to that. And I stuck to, yeah, yeah. I would do three sentences a day. And some days it would be literally that. And then other days I'd just keep going and going. Just depended on... Whatever. And then I made it like really, you know, I tried to make it as nice as possible. Go to nice coffee shops, go and sit somewhere, put nice music on, light a candle, just make the environment nice. So I'm actually enjoying the activity that I'm doing. And then it was like the whole side of procrastination and like being able to, when there's a tempting offer on the table, you know, let's scroll on social media instead of doing this work, being able to like remove that as quickly as possible. And in the book, there's loads of tips for how to when you're faced with a procrastination choice, because it is a choice. Your brain essentially in that moment is detecting, I feel stressed. Yeah. Let's do something that's... Let's chill. Let's chill. Let's soothe. Let's not do the thing that's stressing you out. Let's do this other thing. The brain is very present bias. It's got a very short-term sort of view on things because that's how, you know, it's designed to be. It's not designed to think overly, overly long-term. It thinks long-term, but not really in the emotional like sense. So, Yeah. It's about taking that other option off the table so you can keep going and rest. Lots of rest. Lots and lots of rest. Mm-hmm. Well, have you got any other books coming out? Not at the minute, no. This uh, one. Are you came... going to have a podcast about the book? I don't know yet. Maybe I might do something along those lines. The book only came out, what, like a month or so ago? So I think I'm just riding the wave of this book now. And then, yeah, we'll see It's what taken happens. her across the world. It's taken me all over the place. Taken her all over the place. All over the place. But yeah, yeah. So we'll see what happens. But yeah, just making fun content and YouTube Yeah, because you've got TikTok. lots of stuff on YouTube, on your Instagram. We didn't touch on some of it, but you've got stuff on like how the brain affects jealousy. Well, you said it's not actually jealousy, it's envy. Which oh, are yeah. Two different things. Two different things. Yeah, brain is emotional. Two different Two things. Two different things. Yeah, yeah. And we we mix them up quite a lot. So yeah, my TikTok and Instagram is all about, I just like to think about how does the brain, all of the questions we have in our day-to-day life, how is the brain working in those situations? Why, why do we do the weird things that we do? Can I unpick it? And yeah, through like the work that I do working in science media, I speak to so many interesting people. So I just like to tell their stories really and get that you know, why do I do that? And you're like, oh, yes. That's why. There's a reason. There's, there's a, a reason. There's a scientific why this reason. That. And I like, that's the logic side of me again. I always want the logical reason. Well, people do believe like there's always a scientific reason for things. Yeah. So it makes sense. And on that note, thank you so much, Julia. <laughs> thank you for joining me. Thank you. And bye, bro. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. 
I hope that you enjoyed that chat as much as I did. I'm sure you heard it. Thanks for listening. And I've noticed as well that some of you have started using the new Q&A feature on Spotify. So please keep sending me your feedback. Love to see it. And to keep up to date with our latest episodes that are coming out, please hit the subscribe button on Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen to your podcast. And I'm going to be back next week. Bye.